We've been talking earlier about Chardonnay. I thought I would open a couple of bottles to get a serious contrast um, in styles and talk about what's popular and what might be actually good. So there's a difference yeah. between popular and actually good. In Chardonnay, there sure is. Nice. <laughs> that gets the party started, no? <laughs> Hi, I'm Ben Marks, and this is GrottoPod. Today's guest is wine writer Sarah Schneider, who I've known since we were colleagues at Sunset Magazine back at the end of the last century. For the purposes of GrottoPod, I wanted to speak with Sarah about the sometimes curious vocabulary of wine writing, with its references to notes of caramel and descriptors such as grassy and funk. More selfishly, I figured a conversation about wine writing might include a bit of wine tasting, which it did. And so, on June 14th, 2019, I headed over to Sarah's to talk about wine writing and drink some wine. We began with a couple of California Chardonnays. And so um, this is a, let's see, a Mary Edwards Russian River Valley Chardonnay from 2016. It is. And um, Mary Edwards is just an iconic winemaker up there. And she is a well-known maker of Pinot Noir, less known for Chardonnay, mm-hmm. but um, this one is from Olivet Lane Vineyard. It's one of the older vineyards up there now. I think it was probably planted in the 70s, mm. and so it's got really low-yielding vines. But could I sidetrack us for just a minute here? Please. Because <laughs> the, the other Chardonnay I have here um, is from the Central Coast, from Chamassal Vineyards, and it is a Chardonnay made completely without oak. There are lots of reasons to put oak on Chardonnay, but this one is, you know, what they call naked. And we should probably taste it first. Okay. Um, and the bottle says stainless Chardonnay because it's in stainless steel tanks? Right. Okay. Right. And when um, you say put a Chardonnay on oak, is that, was that the phrase you just said? I think I might have, or yeah. maybe I said put oak on the Chardonnay. Put oak on the Chardonnay, right, but the oak, but the Chardonnay is actually in, in oak. the oak. <laughs> so the fact checker would say, "Well, it's in the, sh- you know, it's in the oak." You know, fact checkers have saved me all these years, all right, but all sometimes right. they are really annoying. And and if you're uh, listening here at home and um, uh, kind of grumpy that you're not here with us drinking this wine, um, I'll inform you that. Uh, in front of me, there's a container for me to spit into. That's right. Because if we sit here and drink all of this, and Sarah's laid out several bottles and several glasses for us, um, uh, I don't know how I'd get home. You know, that's the dark side of this business. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you really do have to spit. Okay. Um, and so now you're opening a, a screw top. Let's see what that sounds like. Not not quite as dramatic as the pop. Right, right. Yeah. But it was surprising. Just this week, I was um, judging a bottle, a wine packaging contest, mm. and in the classic uh, category, I think half the bottles were screw cap. 
um, which is kind of surprising. It's it's really becoming acceptable. And is it's becoming acceptable without compromising the quality of the wines? For the most part. Okay. That, that's the going wisdom. Mm-hmm. At first, when people started putting their wines in screw caps, they were noticing that, I mean, it's, it's a very um, anaerobic environment. There is no exchange of oxygen right. at all, or there wasn't at that time. Now you can, can actually do that. But they were finding that their wines were tasting a little reduced. Um, it's a character that gets a little stinky, a little flinty, like a match just um, being lit. And when you first opened the cap you would get that whiff, or when you first poured a glass, that whiff, and then it, it did blow off. But now people are treating the wine a little differently before it goes in the bottle and, and so, so there was no, quality. Yeah. Right, so there was nowhere for that uh, residual aroma to go. Right, right. Whereas with a cork, some of it would get out. That's the theory. That's the theory. You can so quickly get in the weeds on these topics because you have advocates who swear that there's a small exchange through the the cork, and then you have other people who say, no, it's a complete seal, and there's there's no exchange. And it keeps the professionals busy, I guess. (laughs) It gives them something to talk about. Right. So let's, let's taste this stainless. Okay. The chamisol. The chamisol. And this is from the Central Coast? It is from the Central Coast. The winery itself is in Edna Valley in San Luis Obispo County. Obviously, the fruit for this wine is from a wider swath because it doesn't say Edna Valley. It just says Central Coast. Right. So, no oak, in or on, whichever you... Okay, so you're spinning it around. Swirling. Swirling. (laughs) Spinning. (laughs) (laughs) Too much and we will be spinning. See, again, why do we say swirl and not spin? Is that jargon? Right. Yeah, so so one of the things we're we're talking about today is jargon and tropes and the the language of wine writing. And you're right. When we were chatting about this earlier, you were talking about how, yeah, some of this stuff is um, almost at a parody point at this point. But other words are just helpful. They, you know, they, they communicate to the reader uh, what it is you're doing or what it is uh, they should be looking for. In, in, in the wine. Right. And words, words are really all we have, which is problematic. <laughs> as, a, as a writer. As a writer, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you can have visuals on a wine and learn a little bit from what you see. Mm-hmm. But to describe it, it's complicated to know whether to get in the weeds and try to come up with every fruit flavor and every other flavor in there or or is that the most important thing about a wine maybe it's not maybe it's a broader description of how the wine feels how how heavy is it? What's its texture? What's it? You know, how bright is it? How tannic is it? Mm-hmm. And but we we agonize over fruit flavors in general because it's a fruit. You know, it's um, and you are literally getting well in this one apple pear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to my barely trained palate, 
when you opened this bottle, I mean, the room smelled like fruit immediately. Did it? Yeah. See, I, I might be so used to it that I don't notice that, yeah. that wafting. Yeah. And then when I tasted it just now, it tasted almost metallic. On that word, is that a good thing or an, or a bad thing? It seemed like a bad thing to yeah. me. It's it's not like the wine's undrinkable by any stretch, but just you know, sitting here, going through the exercise of trying to notice characteristics. <laughs> right. Those were the two ends of the pole for me: fruit to metallic. And I'm going to taste it again. I think that's really interesting, and the fact that the bottle says stainless didn't influence that. Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have to hire a psychoanalysis to tell me how much of the, the marketing influenced my, my opinion of the wine. Now, now it's mellowing out, to, yeah, but I'm not spitting. <clears throat> well, I guess I haven't yet either. <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere, right? Somewhere, yeah. yeah. No, I completely agree with what you just said, that there, there's this fruit basket that sort of jumps out in aromas and then on the palate a good spin on it and this is really jargony would be that that's minerality okay but again that's so controversial because some bioscientists say it's impossible for a wine to pick up minerality say directly through the process through this plant system from the roots from, right. from the soil others say clearly there's influence from the soil it's in but the word means so many different things to different people is it is it that metallic sort of thing is it sometimes a little saltiness almost a saline quality mm-hmm. which is a big thing in a lot of wines and I find it really interesting but try writing that it's hard to give that a good spin right a salty wine right that doesn't sound yeah. appetizing nor does a metallic wine sound appetizing right but those might be interesting flavors to encounter mm-hmm. when you're drinking a glass of wine what's interesting you know uh, what's interesting about this Sarah is that everything we're talking about we're we're here you know, under the umbrella of the grotto and writing and that sort of that sort of stuff. And you and I have been writers for, you know, a bunch of years. But what's interesting to me about wine is that if we were people who if we were videographers, you'd still be stuck with all these words to talk about it. You'd get to see the wine, you'd get to see that it's a light color versus a red, right? But you'd still have to talk. You'd still still have have to to use words. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's kind of like uh, wine writing is this weird thing where video wouldn't save you. Travel writing, video might save you in a different way. Right. As a communicator, it it might literally show you the valley. You'd have a tool. Right. um, To telegraph information. Yeah, but but video doesn't help you much. Right. And. Another struggle I've had through the years, um, once I finally went over to the dark side and got into wine writing, was that I've always written for general lifestyle magazines. I've never written for wine magazines where you assume that your reader knows the jargon, is interested, and will go with you down murky description paths. I've had to come up with words that general wine drinkers will find appealing. If that's assuming I'm not critiquing the wine and, mm-hmm. and I'm recommending the wine. And 
you're left with some on the some borderline words that are really appropriate to a wine, but but maybe not appropriate to the audience. I, I remember a wine description that I wrote once and threw the word leather in in. There are a lot of red wines that have a really interesting layer of leather. It's kind of a combination of flavor, texture, and and earthiness. And and I had a, a top editor come flying down the hall with my wine description and said, leather? We do not have leather in our wines here. So you're dealing with that. And, and did you mean leather? You said texture, but is it also, I'm guessing, smell? Smell, too. Yeah. yeah. Try to make that sound good. Right. <laughs> yeah. A, a lovely leather metallic <laughs> wine. I've seen descriptions that call it sweaty leather, oh. like, a, like a saddle. It kind of goes downhill from there. <laughs> so... In contrast, we, we probably need both of these Chardonnays in front of us at the same time, right? Uh, you're the boss. Okay. <laughs> Not so sure. Thank you. Sure. Now we need to keep them straight. Oh, right. Um, okay. Which... This is the one you just gave. Okay, so, so this the, is the, sh- the metallic one is in the back. <laughs> now, so, uh, so before we lose metallic, am I off base in that characterization yeah. at all? I mean, it's there, right? It's there. It's not just my imagination. No, no, no. It is, it is really there. I, I can't say that it is a quality that the wine picked up because it was in steel tanks. Right. It's something the wine has from its fruit source and the fact that it wasn't covered up with a, a material that would add textures and layers of other flavors. Like um, oak. Like oak. Which, which brings us to this. One of choice. Yeah. yeah. So this brings us to Mary Edwards. Mary Edwards. Okay. And uh, full disclosure, this is apples and oranges when it comes to price point. Our first wine, which I actually happen to really like, mm-hmm. um, I... I love that freshness mm-hmm. in, the, in the mouth. It's probably less than $20. Okay. This one from the old vineyard, I'm guessing is over 60 Okay. So okay. there you go. All right. All right. Let's taste it. Smell it first. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> hmm. Sometimes I lose my words. I just say yum. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that quite a bit it, it, it <laughs> wait you, and you can quote me on that I will I'm gonna... no I mean it's just um, you just said about oak covering up things like my perceived metallic mineral mm-hmm. whatever with the other bottle with mm-hmm. the unoaked stainless steel tank even though you, you took pains to say that it doesn't get the metal flavor from the stainless steel. And this just seems kind of like it's got more layers. It's yeah, got more, yeah. m- there's more going on. I agree. And to me, so Chardonnay is all over the board now in style. And, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, we sort of discovered it as a darling for our go-to white wine. And back then, people were channeling the it, the white Burgundy techniques. You know, in, in Burgundy, if the wine is white, it's Chardonnay, mostly. 
And um, there in this, you know, very cold climate, well, they say it's colder than it really is, but uh, where it struggles to get quite ripe, they do things to the wine to build weight and putting it in oak barrels is part of that. It adds texture and the toast on the barrel adds spice and and they also put the wine through a secondary fermentation called malolactic and that transforms malic acids into literally into lactic ones which are the dairy mm-hmm. uh, dairy acids and so that's where you get that buttery character oh. and we were early chardonnay makers were channeling those techniques on steroids in a way even though here chardonnay was getting really ripe and probably didn't need the level of all of that so the style that came to be known as the california style was buttery and oaky and when people stuck their nose in the glass and got that whiff that combined both they thought ah that's a good chardonnay Mm -hmm. and that became the the style of choice there's been a big pullback on that part of that was a trend toward stainless chardonnay Mm -hmm. just go without oak and i'm guessing that there's very little malolactic fermentation on this one Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes it was partial but chardonnay can be really boring Mm -hmm. um, without being built in a way by a winemaker they Mm -hmm. call it the winemaker's wine because what you do to it has so much effect and and uh, just a couple of terms you've just used without thinking about it built for example or uh, no wait forgive me when you said wait you aren't talking about literal weight you're talking about the character exactly okay and see these words we've come to use to signal a certain thing and we think everybody knows uh, when they really don't Um, and and toast toast is kind of literal yeah um they burn the inside of the barrel okay and you can get light toast medium toast heavy toast Mm -hmm. and it can literally put toast flavors in in the wine so so look look for an avocado toast chardonnay (laughs) coming coming soon perfect (laughs) chardonnay and avocados are really good together by the way yes yes they are so back to your question on weight it's how it feels in your mouth kind of and and one of the comparisons used often is with milk does it seem like skim milk low fat or full fat milk you know Mm -hmm. as filling um, your mouth with textures Mm -hmm. and so so probably because of the temperature of the, the the ambient air temperature of where Chardonnay is grown in Northern California, it didn't need all this all, all this exercise that the uh, that they were doing in France to get to get these flavors, and so you end up with a a wine that you know tastes like a bag of popcorn almost. Yes. It's so buttery. Yes, I've come to feel that Chardonnay does need some of that, but in in mm-hmm. moderation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this Mary Edwards gets it just right. Yeah. I feel like there's serious complexity coming from the fruit itself. It's very concentrated mm-hmm. from that old vineyard. But, and I'm, I'm guessing there's quite a bit of new oak on this. 
And I say new in contrast to old oak, which would be neutral. It wouldn't be giving off all of those spicy notes and toast. It would just be adding a mouthfeel, right? Way, texture. Right. So with old oak, at a certain point, whatever flavors are in the oak have leached out. Yeah, yeah. After how, how many uh, is old one use, or is it a dozen? Usually they. Say after three, it's oh. three years, it's neutral. Okay. But I think this one has a beautiful level of hints of spice and vanilla, which can come from the oak. All right, let a me see. Tiny bit of caramel. Vanilla, caramel. Let me, uh, I'll be the judge of this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe the vanilla. I'm not getting the caramel. No caramel. I get it more on the nose, but. Oh. Here's the thing. Yes. We all, we all taste and smell very, very different things. Right. It just is. So for a wine writer to declare, you know, flat out, absolutely, this is what's in this wine, is a little arrogant. Yeah. On the other hand, if you were given an assignment to write an article <laughs> about a type of wine to either review it or to go to the vineyard and tell the backstory or whatever the assignment is, you've been asked to declare something, right? I struggle with that. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I think that there are a lot of wine writers who are very happy about that, very glad to opine. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is what you need to know about this wine. And there are you know people that love to judge wine competitions because they get to pass judgment on hundreds of wines but i can i this is a confession uh, probably um i just last weekend i was judging a wine competition and i realized how much i don't like doing it we the first day each tasted about 120 wines and that's a pretty quick judgment you know to get in on a wine think you understand it and give it a score. And and I'm I'm assuming that it's impossible for wine number 3 to be judged with the same level of clarity whatever you want to call it as wine number 87 and not because you've been drinking the whole time and you're drunk necessarily right. but but just because you know there's been all this stuff in your mouth that's probably changed how you're tasting things, no? Very much. And e even in a small small flight, if you come to a wine that is so distinctive, good or bad or otherwise, it can really ruin the next wine for you. So so the good tasters are, are constantly trying to refresh their palate with sparkling water, crackers. If you're tasting red, roast beef mm. will, will clear up tannin buildup in your mouth, doing all sorts of things to try to keep clear. And this particular competi competition, I think, had a, a really good tool built, built in. We were, we were paired off. Each two of us were tasting the same wines. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have to agree, but we talked about them all. And I think that really helps because your partner will pick up on something that you missed completely or the other way around. Mm -hmm. So you end up learning a lot, but I always go away thinking, were we really fair? 
And so the first day you tasted 120 yeah, different yeah. wines, and, what, and you said there was a second day? A, a half day. A half day. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think we tasted about 65 or 70 wines okay. yeah, the next morning. Yeah, so 200 yeah. in total different wines? Yeah, 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 a little over 200. And, and so that at the end, this was a competition? Mm-hmm. People, people submitted their wines to be Got judged. So, so wineries. Yes. Yeah. And the judges for this competition happened to all be wine writers. Ah. So. Okay. It was called the Critics Challenge. Got it. Yeah. And so at the end of this, there was a score because you would you would be scoring each wine on various characteristics. And what you're really deciding in the end is whether it deserves a medal or not, mm-hmm. a silver, gold, or platinum medal. And so would you score different varieties? Separately, or was it an overall kind of winner-take-all thing? Separate. Um, okay. They were divided into flights. Got it. So, in fact, we had four flights of Chardonnay. There is a sea of Chardonnay in the world. Yeah. And I was, quite frankly, really, really disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm completely sure this Chardonnay, this Mary Edwards, was not in any lineup we had. Right. Um, for the most part, they were quite inexpensive Chardonnays, mm-hmm. and they were, across the board, literally sweet. Winemakers know that people like a level of sweetness in their wine. Yeah, so this is like the $10 stuff at Safeway? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Eight, eight to 12 bucks, probably. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, we, need, we need decent wine at that level. Yeah, of course. Um, it and there's sh- there's be... there's some people who say that for the most part most wines shouldn't be much more than that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, if you're getting it from a, a particular vineyard where there's a limited number of grapes and you know they're taking extra yeah. steps or whatever, there's costs associated with that. But even in the the lower lower tier wines, they're mimicking that high quality or perceived high quality with cheap materials. Mm-hmm. They're throwing oak chips into it you know put it in a steel tank and but then throw oak chips in, into uh-huh. it um, well that's how budweiser makes its beer they throw <laughs> ch- uh, chips of beechwood in the <laughs> is tanks. that true oh yeah yeah well, there you go yeah they're they're not aged in beechwood tanks they're aged in, <laughs> in steel, tanks. steel tanks yeah so funny yeah ah, what, a, what a business but do you like this Mary i do I, i'm going to taste the chamisol that's again that's a good idea so now the I, I'm still getting um, again. I don't know if metallics or mineral is even the right word, but I'm still getting that, yeah. and I'm liking it more. Yeah, and this uh, is a refreshing wine for it's sure. It's very refreshing. Yeah. yeah, with some lovely flavors of apple and pear, a little tropical. I started to say tropical notes. So do we know where the who you first used the word notes? We we were starting to talk about the word notes earlier. We were. And what do you know about the word notes? I don't know a thing about how it entered the lexicon of okay. wine writing. Not a thing. I'm not sure anybody could could trace that one. Mm-hmm. But when we started talking about it, I realized that it's truly a metaphor. Notes, but nobody thinks of it as a metaphor anymore. It's just little bits of this and that that you get picking up in the wine and notes of butterscotch. Or, um, so it's sort of meaningless as 
with its own meaning, but it it moves the narrative along. So, and you have to have some words that just get you to the descriptors. Right, so notes is as if flavors could be sounds. I think that's what it originally came from. Otherwise, we'd be using hints, hints of this uh-huh. and that. And so notes is generally used, though, to describe actual quote-unquote sounds as opposed to styles of sounds. That's true. So you wouldn't yeah. say notes of Hendrix. You would say <laughs> no, notes of guitar. Right. Maybe. I don't know. I think so. And when you, when you use it in wine, you're about to say something really specific. Right. A specific flavor or smell. Right. It could be either. But it's one of those sense senses crossovers Mm -hmm. that actually happens some people oh now i'm forgetting the word for when when you hear things in terms of colors Mm -hmm. there's a word for the the condition yeah and people some people actually taste wine in terms of colors Mm -hmm. as well it tastes gold and i don't mean that this happens to be a goldish sort of wine right but I remember once having some music on when my daughter was very young, and it was a symphony. I think it was Beethoven. And she said, oh, that sounds so brown. And I think that same sort of crossover happens with hmm. colors and flavors. And But to, to telegraph in more creative ways, you can get yourself into, into trouble quickly. I, there was a time when people started describing wines in terms of popular characters. You know, that's the Marilyn Monroe of Chardonnays. Well, that might have actually been a good picture to describe the wine. I don't know, sexy and voluptuous. Uh, but you could really only use that once. <laughs> you can't. You can't keep coming up with another Marilyn Monroe. Wine. Right. Yeah. Tough business. I mean, Whereas you can use the term, the phrase apple flavors or warm baking spices endlessly and people don't if they're interested in the wine they don't seem to mind Mm -hmm. although it's really really hard to to write wine notes for say 12 or 15 of the same variety of wine Mm. in in an article uh, 12 cabernets and and change it up at all i mean you're going to have cassis and blackberry flavors in every single one. But that happens with travel writing, too. And, and wine writing has, is kind of an interesting cousin. I want to ask you about both food writing and mm. travel writing, because it seems like wine writing... Well, well, tell me about your background, actually. You, you came to wine writing via food. I did. And, I did. Um, it, and you were at uh, Bay Food? You were the managing editor there? I, I was the editor. Oh, okay. For three years uh, at Bay Food, which was a fun little controlled circulation Bay Area magazine, covered food and wine. And I had just come out of chef school, knowing that I wasn't going to cook professionally, but had this chance to edit the magazine. And that's when the whole field clicked, that you could be a wordsmith in content that you really, really loved. And I was at the time still headed in the food direction and wine was sort of just under the umbrella. And I then went to Sunset Magazine 
actually, I was an accidental traveler. That's why I ended up getting into wine. I was the food editor before I was the wine editor, and our wine writing then was always freelance, and we had a, a very prominent wine journalist as our wine writer, and I was her editor in-house, and um, we developed a relationship, and she was really generous with her knowledge, and we started tasting together, and so there was a real mentorship going on, mm -hmm. and in the meantime, management at Sunset wanted an in-house voice on wine, so mm -hmm. they asked me to pull it in-house, and we started a wine competition and a wine club, and I finally, I called uncle, I, you know, I couldn't do all of that, and so they... As I remember it, I'm not sure the editor-in-chief remembers it this way, but I think I remember them saying, okay, which do you want to be? And so I veered off in, just into wine, and they brought in a, a new food editor. So so bagging up a sec to Bay Food, you, you were a food person. Right. And being involved in this, in this uh, writing enterprise was kind of a secondary... Thing for you at that time. Am I misstating that? No, no, that's accurate. Yeah. There, so Bay, yeah. so Bay Food was a way for you to be involved in the world of food. Yes. Not a way necessarily to become a food writer. No, no. I I did write several pieces for Bay Food when something came along that I really, really wanted to look mm -hmm. at, but I did not consider myself a writer. And so you were editing based on your expertise in food. And the fact that I was an old high school English teacher. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, which drove me to eat and drink a lot. <laughs> I see. So you, so you had a predisposition for the, for for the, the, words. the line of yeah. work that you ended up in. But it, it took... It's only been recently that I actually have started identifying as a writer. Mm -hmm. It was... Even as the food editor at Sunset, you're definitely more of an editor of other people's words than a content creator. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I moved over to wine, I was still called the wine editor, but I was really the wine writer. Because that's what they wanted was the in-house expertise at the time. Right, right. Got it. But it's, you know, it's something you back into. It's not something that you know when you're 14 you want to grow up to be a, a wine writer <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> probably not it, it seems like there's a relationship obviously between food writing and wine writing in that you know the two things often happen at the, in the same time yeah but there's also this travel aspect of it and i've read a lot of your stories where you're on the road and you're you're starting out and you're you're kind of giving the reader a sense of where this stuff comes from, which is a similar sort of chore to being a wine writer, which is, or a travel writer, excuse me, which is to give the reader a sense of where this place is. It's interesting that you are, are of course, very aware of that. As I happen to know, you have a very long background in travel writing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I feel like where food was going in through the early 90s when I was first getting into it and um, and then into this century, it was being tied to place very much more in that a context of place became really, really important. And a food, food became a travel story 
through those years, I think more than ever before, because people realized that on their travels, diving into the food of a region was a big part of why they were there. And uh, speaking for myself, it's probably 90% of why I'm there. The same thing is true in wine. It's, it's a product of a place, unless it's $8 a bottle, then, then it's a product of the state or the country. And more and more people, probably after the wave of food interest, came the wave of wine travel interest. And so, so, so often now it's a travel story. And I think even just yesterday afternoon, I was writing about a, a new wine out of Sonoma. And I found myself needing to describe the vineyards that came from, because I had been there. And they were stunningly beautiful, and you could see distinctiveness just from where they were. And the, the uh, up at the top of of mountain peaks, you know, and it it seemed like I could say something about the wine by describing the place, even though it wasn't a travel story because nobody can go there. Mm-hmm. It's not open to the public. Right. But where wine comes from, of, of course, is it, it's very important to what it tastes like. I mean, everyone talks about Rutherford dust or, or, right. or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, the, the, the terroir mm-hmm. is, is terrifically important yeah. to wine. It really is. And these days I'm writing about a lot of wines for which price point is no object, uh, you might say. And at that level... You, you really hope it's showing some distinctiveness of place. Yeah, and, and right. And, and so there is this kind of like, oh man, you know, why does a wine need to be $450 a bottle? But devil's advocate, I guess, drinking wine or eating dinner or whatever it is, is very much an experiential thing, yeah. like travel. And so lots of people travel lots of places where... At some point, it costs them $450 to do a part of wherever they've traveled to. And, and there's, there's kind of no, you know, no thought that that's an odd thing. If your pocketbook is that large, right. then I guess you're right. You're paying for an experience. Right. And in fact, that's become a buzzword. It's, it's an experience now. It's not a commodity. What's funny is that there actually is even at a lot of those upper levels, a, a direct ratio of price to cost of goods that you can trace back because of how much the fruit costs per ton in a certain region. Maybe not over $300, mm. but a $200 bottle of Cabernet from Napa, say, might have come from a vineyard where the, the fruit costs $20,000 a ton. So there's just a sort of formula that multiply it by 10 for the bottle price. Mm-hmm. Well, divide, you know, you get my... Right. I'm not a mathematician, but <laughs> you get the formula. So it, if you, say, paid $25,000 for the ton, and it's actually happening now, which is kind of mind-boggling, mm-hmm. from some really pedigreed Napa vineyards, then you can't make a profit if you don't sell that bottle for at least $250. Right. You'll never be able to make a $10 bottle of wine for Safeway. No. 
uh, with those grapes. It's just not going to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. And so whether as a uh, consumer, you can A, afford that or B, think there's any difference. There is that. Um, You know, because there are people who can afford it and they drink whatever they get at Trader Joe's and then that's fine. And they're happy. Yeah. And then there is the opposite, the person who can afford it and doesn't know the difference but still does it because they don't want to be seen drinking anything at menial prices. The, The trophy hunters who only put on the table for their friends what they can crow about right sounding a little cynical there well yeah i mean but there's everything in between too there's people who just love great wine and there's people who just love kind of tasting different wines and and you know that's just something they enjoy doing i mean just like anyone would like art yeah or traveling i mean there's a lot of people traveling all over the world you know to see the plains of Pagan or, or whatever it is. And you know, there is an exquisite experience to be had. This is actually a pathetic story. <laughs> Several weeks ago, I was doing some speed lightning tasting for a piece that actually had to name the best California Cabernet of the year, the best multiple categories which of course you can't do because it's it's silly there isn't a best one but magazines love to to do that play that game and I was tasting some Napa Cabernets and one that had just come in from a producer that I have recently just loved was $500 for the bottle and I had to open it there was nobody else in the house. I had to taste it. And as you know, you can't keep a bottle of wine for days until your friends finally come over. So there it was. It was open and I sipped it and I thought, this one I can't spit. I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. And I drank the entire bottle, not at that one sitting, but, <laughs> um, but the entire bottle by myself. And I thought, this is so sad. This, it was exquisite. It was an absolutely lovely bottle. But it it deserved a group of friends, you know, mm-hmm. in a special occasion. Yeah. But that wasn't what my minute was all about. So. <laughs> well, it's like that scene in Sideways where he finally opens the bottle <laughs> yeah. at McDonald's or something. Right, right, mm-hmm. has, with his burger. Yeah, has it with his burger. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we switch to some red? We can, sure. Okay. Yeah, and and for the record, we've only sipped on these things. It's not like we've been getting faced here. That's true. I can vouch for there's still a, a lot of wine in all of these glasses. Okay, okay. Just, uh, I just want to make sure we're, okay. we're being clear and transparent. So I'm going to go pour it out. Okay. And we'll put some red in there. Okay. So what are we opening now? So I'm opening a, um, a Carmenere from Chile. Carmenere. Carmenere. It's a grape that actually used to be one of the Bordeaux grapes. And it was back in the 1800s, they had a wave of uh, pest phylloxera that wiped out most of the vineyards and oops. Wow. I broke the cork. Okay. And Carmenere wasn't doing very well in Bordeaux anyway Mm -hmm. because it's too moist there. Oh. And so it was struggling. And so when they replanted 
after phylloxera, they pretty much didn't plant carbonara again. And people, people thought it was extinct. But it's a funny story. Before that wave of phylloxera, um, immigrants to South America took cuttings mm-hmm. and planted in, in Chile, and they thought it was Merlot. Uh-huh. And so they, they, were, they were calling it Merlot, and then, but they realized that it was behaving pretty differently in the vineyard and, and tasted different. And It wasn't until the 90s when there was DNA testing coming along that they realized it was Carmenere and not Merlot at all. They had come to call it Chilean Merlot or something to distinguish mm-hmm. it, but they had Carmenere and, and there's quite a bit of it in, in Chile. It was almost 50% of their what you call Merlot production. And so now they've got this wine that is is really their signature wine. Mm-hmm. You know, like Argentina has Malbec and, right. and Uruguay has Tanat. Chile has Carmenere, but not everybody is calling it their signature because it's it's a little bit of a tough sell. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to open some for you. Oh, okay. Um, because I was just writing a story on it this week and I was struggling to describe this wine in a way that would be appealing um, to readers who are used to rich reds along the Bordeaux model mm. um, and the, the Cabernet model. So I'd be interested in your, your take on these wines. Struggling to describe it to, to those readers because you were trying to figure out how to make it something that they'd be willing to give a try? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And because some of the sort of marking characteristics about this variety is a real savory herbal quality. Um, when people are used to a whiff of sweet fruit, mm-hmm. this will give up sort of sharp, resiny herbs and spices that can go almost bitter. And I was reading a, a description of the, the country's Carmenere from a very good friend of mine who studied it a lot. And he was using terms like roasted pasilla peppers and, and a whiff of green peppercorn and some tar. And I thought, ooh, that's not going to sell anybody on this. <laughs> so. And so as a control, you've also opened a duck horn yeah. from um, 2015. It's, it's a Bordeaux blend, mm-hmm. Cabernet leads with Merlot and a little bit of Petit Verdot and Cabernet Franc. Okay. But, but let's, we've got to do chili first. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. In fact, let me get one more glass for each of us so that we will okay. have three at once. So I'm going a little easy on you because I've, I've opened some, a couple of examples that are kind of high priced. Mm-hmm. And that means that they have gotten ripe. It's from their best vineyards. They've thrown bells and whistles at it ah. and probably taken the edge off all those characteristics I was just describing. I to see. You. Okay. So. So the first one's Kai, K-A-I. First is Kai. It says they've been doing this since 1870. Could be. Uh Okay. 
And so we'll give this a a swirl. A swirl. Not a Take spin. Take it for a spin. <laughs> <laughs> not a spin. And so I've got a little cork in here, which I'm not being critical. Have you noticed um, corks breaking more in the past handful of years? Is it no, just I, I, anecdotally I is I it a problem? I, I don't think it's worse than it was. Okay. Um, it's always a danger. But but a little cork in your wine won't hurt anybody. No. no. I was just looking at the age on this because with a few years, corks get crumblier. And uh-huh. weaker. This is a 2014. Right. So it's five years old. Yeah. Shouldn't shouldn't be a cork, cork issue. Right. And you so, really give it a good hard swirl. I do. I wanted to give up as many molecules as it will. And that's what's happening chemically? Um, releasing, yeah. 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 Hmm. Yeah. What do you so um, do you have any reference points for that one? Kind of like a mustiness mm-hmm. almost. A little funk. Yeah, a little funk. Mm-hmm. Is that is that is that the jargon? Uh, yeah, it is actually. <laughs> a little better than using the word barnyard. But you get that herbal savory yeah. onus to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely herbal. I'm trying to um, identify the herb. I want to almost say like sage-like. But I think you're right on there. Yeah. 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 Savory, almost side of the road herbalness. Uh-huh. Um, huh. Yeah. So the, right. So I could see where, as a writing assignment, it would be difficult to get somebody who's really, you know, loves a knife and a fork thick. Cabernet, right? To be interested in this because it's going to all sound off-putting to them. It, it will, yeah. Although there's some really lush fruit, in yeah, there, yeah, yeah. But it has a sort of a balsamic tang, yeah. to it. I think that's um, right too, yeah. And yet they are going after that audience. They they've priced that bottle at two hundred and thirty-five dollars. Wow! I that's my reaction. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> but you know, but uh, but to your point earlier about um, tonnage, cost of the tonnage mm-hmm. of fruit. I mean, I'm assuming that the cost is not twenty five thousand dollars a ton, like you know, at a Rutherford. Not in Chile, right? But I was, I just learned something about what's at work there. Carmenere takes just the a very particular combination of sun exposure and and soils and heat and um, it was explained to me that those are often the best plots that any winery has in their vineyard so if they're going to commit to Carmenere they are using their their most expensive land right so so there is that they mm-hmm. that prices through the roof though for Carmenere there's much beautiful wine for um, Forty to sixty dollars. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm going to put a new spin on this, and this is a ten year old Carmenere. Okay. Oh, but it, the glass is so heavy I can barely lift it. The bottle, yeah. <laughs> yes. Ego glass. What did you call it? Ego glass. Ego glass. Uh-huh. What does that mean? Oh, um, whoops. It's a nice sound. It is a good sound, yeah. Just glass that's so heavy, 
it it comes from pride and not from a need. <laughs> right. So they could bottle it in lighter weight material. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It actually, it is becoming a real issue when you think of the footprint of a bottle of wine right. around the world to the weight of that glass. Well, moving it from Chile is the big part of the footprint, That right? is. That is. Yeah. So this is yeah. Santa Carolina. Yeah. Well-known. Herencia? Herencia. Yeah. Okay. At 10 years old. But isn't there a ton going on on that nose? Yeah. Florals. And, mm -hmm. But down to earth and dark chocolate and loam. Could say leather. But you'll get yelled at. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Isn't that nice? Yeah. So that doesn't, so the funk in that is gone. Yeah. And I actually believe the funk in this one would have blown off if we... In a couple more years? Well, or uh, oh. maybe 20 minutes in the oh, glass. I see. It, it probably would have. I see. Yeah. When you're tasting, are there, are there some flights that you taste where they need to have aired for 20 minutes before you... In other words, is there, is there an optimum time? It, it is a case-by-case -case basis. Right. But... But yeah, in general, if you've got a younger wine that has a very tight structure, firm tannins, and it needs time to let the fruit open up, and so a good hour in a decanter. Mm -hmm. Some people, if it's a, it's a very dense, big wine, some people will say hours. Mm -hmm. And when you say firm, to describe tannins. <laughs> what does that word mean in this context? I had this conversation with an editor just the other day. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she basically said, I, she, she took the word tannins out of a description that I ah. had written. And I said, could we maybe replace that? Because that is a very important concept with that wine. And she said, quite frankly, all your talk of tannins was getting really dry. And that I, I was upset, but it just made me laugh because she didn't know what she was saying, that tannins are actually drying. It's what right. makes your tongue start crawling, you right. know, that drying out effect. It is actually a molecular thing. If you, the longer that structure, molecular structure is actually the the smoother um, the tannins are and the gentler they are. Um, shorter shorter tannins are uh, more rustic and rambunctious. And it's a word generally used for the Bordeaux varieties and and others as well because tannins are really a key to their ageability. One of the keys. And they need a certain level of tannin, which is derived from the, the skins and seeds of the grape, as well as from barrels. You can also pick up barrel tannin, oak tannins. But they, they have to be carefully managed so that they get ripe enough so that they're not green um, and astringent. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking in terms of flavor when it's actually a texture. It's a, it's such a murky mm -hmm. crossover concept. But they they want sweeter, riper tannins, but give the the wine long enough in contact with the 
skins and seeds to pick up just the right amount of of tannin and phenolics, all the things that go into the textures of, of the wine, but not too much. And it depends on the side. It depends on the grape. It's that's why they go to school <laughs> to learn all this. And so the the firm tannins would be the shorter ones. Probably so, but I sincerely hope there aren't any chemists listening to this okay. <laughs> because I'm I'm sure I'm describing in broad strokes. You know, um, but but in a winery, presuming they're presumably they're looking at the wine as it's aging and testing it chemically to see how it's how it's proceeding. Yes, yeah. chemically and literally right. um, tasting yeah. constantly. So the um, tannin quality, uh, to make sure I have this correct, it's not a flavor per se, it's more a texture that has an impact on the flavor. That's, I think that's well said. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so, I mean, definitely, this is a Bordeaux grape. It has tannins. But here, they're 10 years old, they've softened. And almost, this is counterintuitive, but I almost think that that unusual spice character on the fruit and that balsamic mm. character comes out even more after 10 years mm-hmm. than this one, this one at five years. So this one, to me, has, has, has more spice to it yeah. than herbal, whereas the previous one I had mumbled the word sage Mm -hmm. this one i almost you know not not as sweet as allspice and nutmeg and cinnamon and things like that but it's it's in that direction it's in that wheelhouse it seems to me i think you're right it almost goes to the maybe north african spices right coriander Mm -hmm. cumin and all of this just comes from the grape and the seed and the I am quite sure that there is a serious amount of new oak on on both of these wines okay. at these price points. Okay. And I mean just just for perspective, I think this one is somewhere in the $100 range. Mm-hmm. So it's half less than half of that one. Right. But that's still the top echelon of Chilean Carmenere. And I almost I realized as I was saying that that I'm almost disappointed in myself that I feel like that needs to be a reference point for in a wine, for a wine. The price. The price. It should stand on its own merits. Yeah, well, but, but there's been a lot of research, I, I think, about, you know, confirmation bias. And if you, if, you, <laughs> if, you, if you pay a lot for something, then you're predisposed to think it's better because yeah. you just paid a lot for it. And I've seen some of those studies. You don't want to, you know, feel like a chump. Right. And when they have people tasting wine and tell, telling them one is $60 and the other is 12 people like the $60 one automatically way more, right. even if it's the same wine. But they love to read stories about two-buck Chuck winning <laughs> blind tastings, don't they? Yeah. I think two-buck Chuck didn't do very, um, very badly in our competition last weekend. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. They know how to build, build right. a wine, and it's more built Mm-hmm. At that level, sure. And then there's Duckhorn, which is just an iconic Napa brand. This, you know, this is sort of a, for me, a kind of reference point, I suppose, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for Napa Bordeaux blends across the the spectrum. It, 
I've, I've, well, we haven't yet to taste this one, but I've always thought that they have retained a certain level of balance when a lot of Napa winemakers were sort of losing their heads and letting their wines get riper and riper and riper and higher and higher in alcohol um, for just this big, plush, you know, Napa Cabernet. I think... Duckhorn is, it's a big, big company now. Mm-hmm. And certainly they're known for Merlot. But I think this wine, they've always kept their cool and their balance mm-hmm. about it. And this one, fittingly for our chat today, is called The Discussion. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's perfect. Yeah. I think the story goes is that it was the result of a very, very long discussion of the principals over the table one night, whether they should do this kind of wine or not, because they were always committed to varieties. You know, right. this is a Cabernet, this is a Merlot, this is our Sauvignon Blanc, and... Yeah, so to use a pejorative word, this is a blend. Right! That's... that You have to name the wine or else it's just a red table wine. If it doesn't have 75% of one variety in it, you can't name a variety. Okay, so let's let's continue the discussion, I guess. And still we haven't spit, which is a problem. We may not get to too many No, I, I, hope, I think we're done. <laughs> I have to say, this is heavy glass, too. But you know... I don't, I don't judge producers for doing that because it sells. Oh, I, God. This that, is, that one's over the top. Yeah. And it sells. So in, in other words, I'm in, I'm in Total Wine or BevMo or wherever I am buying a bottle, and I pick up one, and psychologically it just feels heavier, and so I'm predisposed to think... isn't all that much. Absolutely. Or you think it's way better than the $45 wine just next to it. Right. With the lighter glass. Wow. And when I've, you know, when I've worked in office settings and tasted where I had a giveaway table after the fact, Mm -hmm. um, I would watch as, you know, colleagues would pick up wine to take home. And invariably, it was the heavy glass that went first. Interesting. Yeah even though they knew nothing about what that wine was. Right. Well, so here we go with Duckhorn. But here again, you've got spice on the nose, but also a savory herbal quality, but it's a different level than the Carmenere we were tasting. So my limited experience is, to me, this smells like wine. because, (laughs) Because I'm just so familiar with wines from Napa and it's it's kind of a benchmark for yeah, me yeah. as a taster. I suppose if I'd grown up in Chile I'd have a different different benchmark. Yeah. Isn't that funny? That is so telling. Yeah, it is our hmm. our identification. But this one I think still has energy and vibrancy. They didn't mm-hmm. get it too ripe. I mean it's it's fruit is deliciously ripe but but they picked it while it still had enough acidity mm-hmm. to to come off as vibrant with the a word that used to be negative that is now the high praise is tension if a wine has tension 
it's alive. Mm-hmm. It's it's a you know polar opposites pulling against each other in a good way. Speak, so speaking of words, one one question I forgot to ask you is: Are there words that you just absolutely stay away from? <laughs> there are. I mean, when I was uh, a travel editor, I routinely deleted any. Uh, lead sentence that began with the words nestled in the <laughs> it was just like I, I don't care I don't want to read it uh, do, do you have any words that you just kind of are no I'm not I'm not using that word one is award-winning I I will not use the the phrase award-winning line for the same reason that you're troubled by having to talk about the price probably why should why should that enter in yeah yeah, yeah. besides any wine could be award-winning you can mm-hmm. you can put your wine out there and this are is, you enjoying that this is this is great i'm um yeah sorry this, this is really really good this and the um the mary edwards um i mean i'm i'm being provincial and going with the california stuff but hey that's where we live yeah. both of us i did have another question that i hadn't asked you yet go for it so um over the years we've talked about a couple of books that i think we've both read the billionaire's vinegar yes um by benjamin wallace which was in uh, 2008 and tangled vines by francis dinkelspiel from a couple years ago right. to uh, 2015 and they're both kind of whodunits in the mm-hmm. wine world, mm-hmm. sort of. As you're um, reviewing wines and tasting wines, do you think there's other book topics, you know, sort of books about wine that you've thought, God, this would make a great book? Are there other stories out there? Every once in a while, I come across an idea that I think somebody's got to write that one one that I've thought for a while <laughs> comes from a source out of Sonoma, Rob Davis, who is the winemaker at Jordan, mm-hmm. well-known, iconic California Cabernet maker. Mm-hmm. He's been there from the beginning. I think it's going on 40 years now. But in the beginning, he was named only the assistant winemaker because Jordan had brought on Andre Chelichev as consulting winemaker, or really winemaker. And Andre Chelichev was this legendary winemaker who emigrated to Napa and really is credited for teaching a whole generation of winemakers how to make wine. Um, Would get together with Bob Mondavi and, and regular tasting groups and share ideas and best practices and and he was with BV Vineyard Bouillot and after he retired he consulted all over the place and when Jordan brought him on Rob Davis thought ooh this this guy is really old now I'm going to have a chance to work with him for a couple of years and I'm going to learn everything I can possibly learn and it turned out to be 18 years until Andre was 92 and and Rob tells stories about working alongside this man and traveling all over the world, tasting wine with him. Uh, the guy was a true character from all the reports. And Rob can tell a good story. And I'm 
every time I meet up with him, I think somebody has to write all this down.、Mm-hmm. And I know that last year there was a movie made. Andre's nephew, I believe, made it. But I don't think that precludes a book.、Mm-hmm. It really hasn't been written about、mm-hmm. this. This man, the legend, you know, and woven in would be the the technical details of what he brought to California winemaking, but it would be a person. You know? So it's the Chalichev's story, not Rob's story. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. But Rob tells it pretty damn well. As as,、uh, as the wine industry has consolidated to the point that the same handful of companies own most of the wineries.、Um, Do you do you get the sense that that collegiality and that give and take and that、mm-hmm. let's keep learning is is still happening or or is is everything a trade secret now? I I, I don't know. I don't mean to paint it one way or the other. Right. No. Not a leading question at all. I think there's less sharing, but it's still. Very much. I mean, yeah. The a, a few large corporations make eighty five percent of the wine in in this country, but there's still a majority of family owned wineries, even in Napa. And when I talk to those winemakers, they there's a lot of collegiality, and I hear sharing going on.、Mm-hmm. It's it's still. There are a lot of good people that do this work,、mm-hmm. and they're doing it in their own style. But I, I still feel like they're they're competing with their products, but personally sharing what results and what's worked and and what they're trying next. What they are competing for is fruit from the top vineyards. There's some vineyard sources like Tokalon. And other vineyards that Andy Beckstoffer, who's a legendary grower and has locked up a whole lot of Napa fruit, and control controls the wines made from it. I mean, he has strict standards he,、um, over who he will sell fruit to. And I feel like that's actually, and I'm talking about people who aren't making necessarily from their own estate vineyard,、mm-hmm. they're sourcing fruit, and. I think that there's a disservice being done there. It sort of creates a a golden circle of、mm-hmm. people who have gotten wine, gotten fruit from particular vineyards, and they can automatically slap a price on the wine. And it it leaves some really talented newcomers out. But that said. There's sort of a, a new exploration spirit, I think, among consumers、mm-hmm. who are are wanting the new thing, you、mm-hmm. know. And we're talking about Napa. I'm hearing a lot of people exclaiming about wines that they're discovering from Coombsville, which is one of the newer AVAs at the very southern end of Napa, where it gets the the cool breeze off off the bay, and. Sort of circles in this horseshoe mountain, and the wines、uh, have that vibrancy that I was just talking about, and, and they don't get terribly ripe. And that's becoming the newest shiny thing, you know,、right. which, which happens too. And so there's some up-and-coming winemakers there who are going to be the next stars. Well, Sarah, thank you for talking with me. This has been 
a bunch of fun. A bunch of fun for me too. Thank you. Okay. Um, I can talk all day. <laughs> <laughs>